In this powerful podcast episode, I chat with Leah Landaverde, a first-generation queer Latina entrepreneur and finance professional, about how money trauma shaped her life and career and what she is doing to uplift others. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Leah Landaverde, a first-generation queer Latina entrepreneur, master of finance, professor, wealth coach, and podcast host of Mi Riqueza Podcast. After working six-plus years in the finance industry, Leah decided to break away from corporate to follow her passions in helping underrepresented communities. She's on a mission to help women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ+, cultivate a beautiful relationship with money through breaking generational money curses to align, build, and grow their wealth. Love your mission and so excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You are doing such amazing work and I know we're going to have a vibrant and wonderful conversation today. So let's get started. So you're working in financial services and traditional financial services typically catered to an older white community. You focus on serving first-generation queer and LGBTQ communities. So all of these underrepresented communities have unique money challenges and concerns. And so I'm curious, you know, what are some money concerns for these particular communities and how do you help them? Yeah, no, it is a, you know, different environment, right? Versus the white traditional old, pale, and stale. It's like what we like to call it in the financial services industry, right? Um, I started in finance because I personally went through a lot of financial struggles with my family. I'm a first-generation Latina, and I saw how this financial realm wasn't made for us, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, we, in the 2008 recession, we lost our home, we went bankrupt, and we didn't know what to do. And so as I grew up, I decided to study finance. And when I was studying it, that's where I realized this financial system in itself wasn't made for the community, right? It wasn't made for those who don't have 100K in assets to invest or, you know, a million dollars, right? And when I look at these communities in my community, I see that we're so lost in this conversation of money, We've never had it. That's a thing. It's it's not something that we grow up speaking about and saying, hey, you know, you, you should also plan for your retirement. You should, you know, save for emergencies and do X, Y, and Z with your money. We don't have those type of conversations. And when 
I dove into this a little more after leaving my past employer, I just saw that we were still underserved, even years after being in the industry and studying and finding out, you know, all the things in my college education. And I was like, this hasn't changed. And that's the craziest part is that there's still so much more work to do. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up those points. I mean, I think it's a complete paradigm shift. And yeah, the current status quo is serving the pale and steel community, as you mentioned. And there's whole communities that are left out. But as we know, money is important to everyone. Money is needed by everyone in some sort of way. And I appreciate you sharing your personal experience of growing up with money and and dealing with the 2008 recession and dealing with, you know, your home and then also um, bankruptcy. Can you let the listeners know, and I'm curious as well, kind of how did that shape your money mindset or, you know, how that must have been very financially and probably personally traumatic for you? No, for sure. It really was. Um, I think when I look back and you're thinking about, you know, I sit down and I'm like, what was my first memory of money? That's my memory. My memory was being, you know, 10 to 12 years old and my father having conversations with my mother about, hey, we need to call, you know, ex-uncle because I don't think I'm going to have enough work to do. So my parents are entrepreneurs and they are in the landscaping industry, which ties to the real estate industry and the market, right? So if the real estate market wasn't performing well, our business wasn't performing well. And when you know, 2008 happened, but it wasn't until maybe it's like the aftermath, right? The 2010 Mm -hmm. to 2012, that's when people were really feeling it. And that's where my family felt it the most. We were losing jobs. No one, we couldn't pay our bills. I just remember my parents actually bought a house during the recession and had variable interest rate. So their interest rate wasn't, you know, fixed and they were struggling to pay our mortgage. Essentially they got too much house for what they really needed. And they were targeted through the whole, you know, 2008 market crisis. Like the reason why it happened is because underserved communities were targeted with mortgages and given mortgages that they probably shouldn't have qualified for. There were unethical practices going on back in the day. And that's why people were betting on it. Mm-hmm. And so my parents struggled and they didn't know any better, right? They didn't have anyone to talk to and consult with and find out how to be a homeowner in the right way with the right, you know, ethical standards. And and so the aftermath of the recession really put us at a financial loss. I just remember there wasn't... Um, the lights weren't able to be turned on because we couldn't pay for electricity. We were struggling with gas for hot water. I remember we'd fight over hot water at one point. And the rice and beans were crucial to our, you know, life at that point because we weren't even paying our mortgage. I think we spent like four years not paying the mortgage until we foreclosed. And I had to listen to that. I'm the eldest of, you know, four kids that my mom had. And so I had to listen to my parents because I'm the only one who knew English, who could somewhat translate documents for them. And at the end of the day, they relied on me a lot more than I really expected. But at the end of the day, it 
changed me in a way that the seed of money was planted, meaning I needed to know the why. Why was this happening to me? And that's where kind of like the conversation of finance entered my life. Oh, that is such a powerful story. And, you know, you and your family have gone through so much. And I love that you are taking this really awful and traumatic experience and say, this is going to stop with me and I'm going to help others in my community so that this doesn't happen again and again and again. And for the listeners, for anyone who may or may not know what happened in 2008, I highly recommend the film The Big Short. It's a really superb film about kind of what happened with the mortgage lending crisis in 2008. And as you mentioned, you know, so many people who might not have been great candidates or might not have been able to afford such a mortgage were just given these huge loans. And, you know, if if someone's getting an opportunity on paper, people get consumed with that dream, with that vision, but they may not know the practicalities of what's the difference between fixed versus variable interest? What is the down payment? What does this mean for my monthly interest? How much is this going to, you know, be over the life of the loan? There's so many different things that we don't really know until we get into trouble and we're forced to know, you know what I'm saying? No, it's, it's something that, I mean, until you need to buy a home or want to buy a home, you're not going to find out all the, you know, pieces to the puzzle of a mortgage really. And until you go through it yourself, that's when you find out every single little detail. And, and that's why I advocate for it. I advocate for taking ownership of your money and really diving into your money and what you're going to add into your life, whether a loan or an investment, whatever that may be. Because for so long, we've been in the dark. We've been, you know, just sign this, do this, do that which feels for us like we have to put trust in people we don't even trust because we've never had someone to trust. And when I think about it, right, in financial services, when I look at advisors, and I've heard so many horror stories of advisors telling minorities and other communities like, hey, we can't take your money because you don't have a certain amount of assets, so we can't help you build wealth. And it's like we try, we try to find resources but none of them are made for us. Yeah, it is so backwards, this whole idea that financial services can't work with certain people unless they've amassed a certain amount of wealth. And it's like, wait, isn't your job to help people build wealth? So it's kind of this chicken and egg problem. Like, how can I get there if no one will help me get there? So I guess I'm just going to be shut out of this altogether. And I think, you know, there are is a whole new generation of advisors who want to break the status quo, who want to help different communities. And I think it's so important because if we want to change the world, we need to change who has the money and how we relate to that money and make sure that we have money mission statements so that we can, you know, spend on our values and help support other communities. Like one of my personal money mission values is taking my money as far as possible. So instead of necessarily, you know, buying on Amazon where I might just be supporting Jeff Bezos, I'm supporting a small business owner who is then supporting their child and their dad, and then they go spend that money elsewhere. And so you have several layers of people using that money. And so that's something that's been personally beneficial for me. And I think, you know, we need to have a whole paradigm shift about this. And and something that you mentioned earlier, you know, you mentioned that 
you were the first one in your family to speak English, and so your parents were relying on you to translate documents, and, and that must have been so difficult because you were kind of forced to be an adult when you are still a child, and you're dealing with these things and trying to navigate your parents' culture and, and your culture. And so, you know, first-generation communities may have different money beliefs and experiences with money than their parents. So I'm curious, how can someone in this situation acknowledge their parents' past and experiences while cultivating their own money beliefs? No, for sure. I think this is something I like to talk about a lot because not only am I navigating my own life, but I've had to navigate my parents. And I had to grow up really fast. And I'm very young and have been in the industry for a while because I started super young. And at the end of the day, I can't change my parents' financial mindset overnight and I can't change the way they trust money because I, I don't blame them. They've mm -hmm. been, you know, mistreated and scammed and they've gone through so much. So I don't blame them if they don't want to work f with financial institutions or advisors or want to invest. I don't blame them. Like, I really don't. And all I can tell them is, hey, you know, there is another way to build wealth other than land. And real estate is what most Latinx um, believe is the moneymaker here. And I mean, they've been successful doing it. I'm not going to lie. They have invested in land. And fortunately, the town that I grew up in has skyrocketed in growth. So they've profited off of that and essentially built their own wealth. And the way they did it, I'm proud of them, and it wouldn't be my way of building wealth, but I, whatever mindset your parents have or, or have established with themselves, all you can do is provide them awareness and say, hey, there is this and this and this type of resources out there to help us, and this is what I'm doing for myself, right? Because we can talk about it, but it's more about doing the work, right? If I show my parents, hey, I've invested X amount of dollars and look at my return, Right. If I show them my 401k that I started when I was 19 years old with my first employer and I look at the wealth that I've built over this time, they're like, wow, it does work. And they and they get excited and they're proud of me. But will they be doing the same thing for themselves? Mm, I, I doubt it. And they tell me they they just don't want to enter that type of risk. And even when I talk about you know, to my immigrant uncles and aunts who have been here a while and are even citizens. And they're still like, I don't trust it. Mm -hmm. And especially immigrant families. Oh my God, the amount of stress and distress they have in the financial system is even bigger because they're like, well, what happens if I invest or put my, you know, ITIN out there, which is their identification number for tax purposes, and immigration finds me, you know? Mm -hmm. These are all these beliefs that the community has based on feeling like a second-class citizen. And that's why for me, as a first-gen Latina and whoever's a first-generation person of color, all I can say is do the work for yourself, build the trust for yourself. And if your parents follow, great. But if not, just make sure they're taken care of, meaning you make sure they're not getting into scams and, you know, hiding money under the mattress. At least have them put it in a bank or a high yield savings account or something that even if it's a small amount of interest, 
it's better than nothing, right? Yeah, you brought up so many good points. And I think it's really crucial for people to realize the money history, the money trauma that comes from, you know, maybe your parents being from a different country and what it required to move here and kind of what is required to be a, a part of a completely different system. And then also carrying that literal potential financial baggage from the past. So for example, my partner is Peruvian and he is, you know, he's been here for 20 years, but he grew up in Peru and he was telling me, you know, when he was a kid, like overnight, the economy crashed and the form of money that he was used to was worth basically nothing. And, you know, I think that happened in several places in Latin America where overnight the currency was completely devalued. Right. And that is something that we are not familiar with here in the States. We can't imagine. I mean, we got a glimpse of it in 2008, but I'm talking about widespread, like, mm -hmm. you know, and when he told me that, I was just like, wow, I empathize with that so much. And I also personally can't imagine. And I think it's really important to highlight because this is the money trauma that a lot of people who are immigrants are dealing with this lack of trust because maybe back in the home country, the currency was devalued literally overnight and you thought you were rich one day and then the next day you can barely buy bread. And, you know, this fear, this scarcity, I mean, these are all huge issues that are systemic, that are international, you know, across the border. And then when you combine someone who was born in a different country and then, you know, you were born in, in this country, there's different mindsets, there's different cultural beliefs, there's different ways of dealing with money. And so I love that you mentioned kind of acknowledging where your parents are at and that they may or may not join you, but you can do your best to educate them and take care of them. Right. It's it's crazy to even imagine that the way I believe things and see things is completely different than the way they see things, right? You know, you talked about devaluation of your currency, right? Happened in El Salvador as well, where my parents are from, where we had the Colón, and all of a sudden there was Civil War happened, and now we had U.S. dollar. And people's wealth changed, and especially Central American, Latin American countries, you know, their financial systems are corrupt as well, and they have been underserved and that's why they migrate to the U.S. finding opportunities and when they come here it's like a slap in the face because they feel like second-class citizens the financial system is like a foreign language already mm -hmm. to Americans imagine yes. that to immigrants <laughs> you know and then you have to navigate another language and so I have so much respect for immigrants because they are doing so much for themselves and for their future and for their family. So whatever wealth, whatever way they see wealth, I respect it. Even if it, I don't agree with it completely because I now know the information of what old pale and stale, you know, men know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've studied this for many years and I've applied this to my life and I'm like, okay, I can see how they build wealth. I've seen it. Right. I worked for Goldman Sachs in the past. I saw trades of millions go through. And wow. here my parents are, you know, have 10K, 20K, 30K in savings and they feel abundant, you know. So mm -hmm. what their version of wealth is, I accept and I take and I just want them to be protected. So 
whatever beliefs they have, I'm like, you can have them because I understand the struggle. I understand them and I see them and I respect it because they've done everything to sacrifice themselves for me and my siblings and the next generation. So when I talk about money and when I educate others on money, it's not just for me It's and for me to profit. It's more for the next generation to break our generational curses, to change the way and respect our ancestors, you know, who also sacrificed so much for us to be here. Yeah, you brought up two really good points. One that you see and hear your parents. And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, we all want to be seen and heard. That's crucial to our livelihood and our identity and our mental wellness, you know, to be seen and heard. And you also said, you know, your parents with 20, 30K feel abundant. And that reminds me of my episode with Ken Honda, where he said, you know, if you think you have enough money, you do. And I think that's such an important mindset shift because, you know, you were talking about 20, 30K versus trades of millions. And, you know, you see all of these quote, ultra rich people who feel like they never have enough. And if you can find contentment in what you already have, regardless of what that number is, if you have a roof over your head, food to eat, your family, love, health, you have enough to get by, that's abundance for many, many people. And so I love that mindset shift. And and lastly, you brought up generational curses, which brings me to my next question. So you know, you're committed to working with underserved communities to break these generational money curses. How does money trauma keep people stuck in an unhelpful cycle and how can they get out? Yeah. So, I mean, we mentioned a lot of great points about, you know, the system, the financial system and, you know, just the U.S. system and how people of color, queer communities, you know, are treated, right? And so we have a lot of baggage, we have a lot of trauma, right, within us. And even if I think about myself, right, I'm I'm a lesbian, right? Like I am a lesbian Latina. And that in itself in my own culture is a big no-no. It's a big, you know, something that we don't even talk about. If I talk if I'm real, I don't even talk about it a lot with my family because it's a hush-hush conversation. So mm-hmm. I have this trauma, right, from all right, well, I'm not even following these norms, right? The norms are to marry a man and have children and all these things. And instead, I am single, building wealth, and, you know, a lesbian talking about money, which is taboo, right? So these are, these are like almost forms of fighting back. <laughs> you know, my own identity is a form of fighting back and changing my curse because I'm tired of living traditionally. Because traditional means sticking to past norms and past ways of doing things. And I don't want to be like my parents. That's the thing. And I respect them and I see them, like I said. But I don't want to be like them. Because even my own father told me he never wanted me to be like him. So when the 2008 recession happened and we were, you know, planning our foreclosure and trying to figure out where we were going to live, he told me, Leah, I need you to be smart and I need you to be intelligent because I don't want you to be like me. I don't want you to go through this. You don't deserve that. And that stuck with me. And that's how even my own father wanted me to break my generational curse. 
And so when I see other people who have different curses, because there's so many, meaning you might have a family who likes to gamble or you have a family who's, you know, alcoholic or all these other type of curses that impact money because money is inevitable. It touches everything, you know, Mm -hmm. you probably feel stuck and you're like, well, my parents, my family, my brothers, they're they're broke or they feel broke or they do things this way and makes me feel like I'm in the same boat as them. Right. And we're feeling our traumas, our curses, our pain, but you know what? All of this is part of the system and how we've been suppressed for so many years, but there is a way to get out. And that is by forgiving your past, forgiving your parents and everything around you that has made you who you are today, but also accepting it and saying, okay, yes, I'm in debt. Yes, I, you know, have collections or I've never saved in my life. I haven't done X, Y, and Z. It's okay. Accept it. No one is judging you, but you. And then it's more about taking action for your future self. What are you doing next? That it's going to break the cycle, right? Whether it's, you know, I'm going to read a book about the psychology of money. I am going to read a book about how to budget, or I'm going to listen to this podcast or, you know what I mean? It's like, what are you going to do for yourself? Right? Because no one can take you out of this, but you, that's the thing. I could have stayed stuck after the foreclosure. I could have decided, you know what, this is dumb. I don't like this finance. I don't want to be in it. I could have not paid attention in school. And I mean, for me, I was very blessed and grateful and had a drive to do this. But without that drive, I probably would be living a traditional lifestyle, maybe married to a man that I never wanted to have, maybe have kids and, you know, feel some sort of resentment in my life if I follow these traditional norms that I'm supposed to follow. But instead, I decided to forgive, accept and move on because that is all I can do for myself. Yes, forgive, accept and move on. Such good points. And I love that you mentioned that your identity, your reason for being is basically forming a new way in reaction to the past and saying, I'm going to do things differently. And something that I've noticed in my own healing is that change is really, really hard. And, you know, I came across this quote that I I believe it's from Abraham Maslow. And I think it goes something like, you're either moving towards growth or safety. And, you know, safety can feel very secure and comforting. But what Mm -hmm. I've learned is that sometimes safety is still dysfunctional. (laughs) Yes. You know, because if you have a dysfunctional family and a dysfunctional past, that can still feel safe to you, even though it's not the best for you. So through my own personal healing, you know, from other family and relationship issues, I had to realize, oh my gosh, my version of safety is actually quite dysfunctional once I can see the light of healing a little bit and you have to move towards growth and growth is incredibly uncomfortable because it forces you to literally pave your own path and you might be the first person in your family the first person in your life that's going down this path all alone and it's frightening and of course you want to go back to safety but if you want to break those unhelpful cycles whether it's alcoholism poverty gambling you know any of the number of kind of money curses and generational curses out there, 
you have to be the one to be brave enough to say, this stops with me and I'm not going to do it this way. And that takes incredible bravery and and growth. No, 100%. It It's about taking ownership, right? And accepting it all and just saying, that doesn't define me. None of that defines me. My parents' ways, my cousins' ways, you know, especially in the Latinx culture, we're so family-oriented. And so, you know, what my aunt does is told to my other aunt. And, you know, the, the communication keeps going and it's okay. You know, let it be. Whatever they do and whatever money relationships they have, let it be. Because at the end of the day, are they making you wealthy? Are they doing the saving for you? Are they investing for you? No, at the end of the day, you have to do that. Everything's in your name. Everything is your action. And so it's all about, like I said, taking action on the next step of your life and accepting and saying, you know what? I'm changing the game here. I don't want to be like this anymore. And I understand it comes with a level of privilege to do this as well, because you're letting go of some sacrifices or you know you're fighting the system and next thing you know you're in the next level and you might think about your parents well my parents make you know eight dollars an hour at a farm and they're struggling but here I am in an office with a roof over my head and I can pay for lunch and not worry and feel nice yes I get that you know there is a level of privilege that we might feel guilty about because we leave our family behind. But let's not think about that. Let's think about it as instead of leaving our family behind, we're moving forward in order to bring them up with us. Because the chances of them putting in the work are very hard because they're focused on putting a roof over their head and food on the table. So them building wealth, planning retirement, estate planning, all that stuff is probably the last on their to-do list. And I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't. I wish they prioritized this more. But all we can do is move forward to bring them with us and be able to give them that lending hand and say, it's okay, I got this. I saved enough for your retirement, dad. Hey, don't worry. You know, you're about to retire. You're scared about the business. It's okay. We're going to figure out a plan because I did this for us. Oh, that is so beautiful. I have the chills and I love the way you describe that process. And yeah, I think that is a beautiful way to kind of see this growing and the, the literal growing pains that come along with it. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, so, um, Talking about mental health and money, you have mentioned that you have depression and anxiety, which I have as well. So I'm curious, how has that affected your personal financial life? Oh, the depression and anxiety. <laughs> Don't we Fun love times. them? <laughs> yes. Um, well, for me, it really transformed me in a way that I didn't even realize um, even being in the financial services industry for so long and then, you know, navigating life, I, because of my depression and anxiety, I accumulated like 30, close to 40K in credit card debt um, because of also one, the pandemic Two, I bought a house um, when I was 21 years old and it was amazing. It was the best investment I ever did for myself. I'm very honest, but it was almost like too much house. And then I didn't realize that I had to buy furniture. I had to buy a fridge, yeah. the washer dryer. And oh, then all it's this, expensive. <laughs> yes. And all of this just accumulated itself. And then my job wasn't paying me great. 
but I kept hoping they'd give me a raise that was good enough to, you know, pay myself back. That was never the case. And that's a whole different conversation in itself. But, you know, it didn't help when the pandemic started and I was locked in my house by myself with my dogs Mm -hmm. and all I could do is go on TikTok and scroll and see all these people going shopping on Amazon and, you know, the best thing to buy here and, you know, the, the thing you need in your kitchen. And I was just like, oh my God, yes. And then transaction after transaction, it was giving me the serotonin I needed in my life, the dopamine to feel good again, because in my full-time job, I wasn't happy. I was also very miserable. I was being overworked and, you know, it's investment banking. So I think I can tell you a lot about that industry. So, um, with having a not so good relationship with my job and feeling depressed all the time. And then the pandemic being locked alone at home, going through, you know, my own personal battles with family. And then my only outlet was shopping And I loved it. I spent so much money and, you know, I felt so guilty. I was like, you know what? I have a master's in finance and I'm over here spending money like I got money and lifestyle creep is real. And it was a very hard time for me to really accept all of that. And it wasn't until maybe almost a year ago that I accepted all of it and was like, you know what, Leah, you did this and it's okay because first off, it's not like you knew any better. You know, I wasn't taught all about credit cards in school. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was taught about investing. I didn't know everything. And I had to forgive myself, right? Like I've been saying, you know, forgive the past, accept the present and take action for your future. That's what I had to do for myself then. I had to really accept that I was in debt and I had to work to pay it off. And what was I going to do to pay it off, right? Like, was I going to use, you know, avalanche snowball methods? Or how was I going to compromise my mental health and that boost of serotonin and dopamine with my financials? Because I couldn't continue living this life of spending money, spending money in order to feel some sort of joy. I was done with that. Yes. I think so many people have been in your situation with or without depression and anxiety during the pandemic because so many people, you know, were stuck at home and we're on social media and social media is a wonderful, you know, ad machine, basically. It's a marketer's best friend. And you think, oh, I just, you know, just going to get this, just going to get this. And then suddenly you have tons of debt. And I've heard quite a few stories from friends of mine who are in the same boat. And I personally haven't bought anything off of Instagram or whatever. And I'm pretty good at blocking that out. But I could totally see how the increased amount of time, the increased amount of ads can lead to an actual increase in spending. And if you're not careful, then yeah, it can lead to debt. And that leads to a whole cycle of now I have to pay it back. Now I have to figure this out. And it's just a whole cycle. And paying off debt in itself is not fun. No, it's not. (laughs) I mean, I had to do a whole like come to Jesus moment with myself and be like, okay, Leah, you're sitting on this golden egg of a home because again, I lived in, I live in Utah and 
Utah has been booming the last five years. And so over the two years that I had the home, I had accumulated over 100K in equity. And I was just like, do I really need to live by myself here? Uh, I don't know. Can I sacrifice this home in order to be debt free and start fresh with my life? And maybe move back home with my parents, even though I don't want to, but they want me home. And so it might be a, a nice break for me. And I mean, that's what I did. The The pros outweighed the cons. And that is how I became debt free by, you know, using my, my home investment, my personal home to get me out of it. And I'm very grateful and very blessed for that to have happened to me. And I know there's people who might not have that, you know, level of protection of money, you know, with an asset. But that's why there's methods like avalanche and snowball, but also making more money to help pay off debt, right? And I know debt can be a level of anxiety that no one wants to have. I mean, I remember having it and even still today, I get my triggers every so often, you know, because this is a healing process. This isn't just, I sold my home, paid off my debt, I'm good, Uh uh-uh, I'm still healing and I will always heal for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because healing isn't just a certain time frame. It's a process because one thing after another and after another will happen in life and you just feel like you're not getting a break. But in reality, you're just going through the next phases of your life and you're healing constantly. Yes, healing is a journey. So just to clarify more of the tactical aspects of debt repayment. So did you sell your home or use the equity or or rent it out? I sold my home. And that paid off your debt? Yeah, selling my home paid off my debt, paid off literally everything that I had to my name. And I mean, it was just my 32, I think it was like 35K of credit card debt that I had. And Mm -hmm. the remaining, I gave some to my parents. So I gave them a portion for their savings and their retirement because my dad is getting older. And then the rest I still have saved um, for my next move, which I don't know when and where is I'm going. But, you know, I'm I'm patient now because I feel like in my whole entire life I've rushed through things because I had to be an adult very young. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just kind of taking a break from making all these deciding factors now and just saying, you know what, what aligns itself will align itself the way it needs to with ease without me stressing and planning and you know living life like that no I just I'm tired I was in the investment banking world for four years and I got a master's degree and I did all this stuff for myself but now you know I'm running a business and I need to also pay attention to myself and my needs and just you know relax for a little bit you know take it easy Yes, yes. Self-care is so important and taking care of yourself is the most important thing that you can do. And I really appreciate your honesty and sharing kind of the tactical moves you made with your finances because a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, all of these things come at a cost, whether it's financial, emotional, or both. And so I appreciate you sharing kind of what you did to pay off your debt and how you also shared the wealth with your family and then also have that extra money to fund your next step, which is just a great place to be in where you have that money set aside for 
whatever is coming next to you. And I, I know great things are coming your way. So now that you've paid off your debt, you know, how are you maintaining your mental health on a budget? And what is your advice for other people to do that and avoid the TikTok and Instagram shopping sprees? No, for sure. Um, well, one thing that really helped me was Open Path. I think it's called Open Path Collective. Yes, I love them. Yes, and it's just affordable um, therapy, affordable therapy that you can use for your benefit. And obviously, once you make a certain amount, and I mean, there's a trust process with that, right? Um, and transparency where you're like, okay, I make enough money to now pay for it, you know, full price. But for the most part, you get it super discounted to your benefit to get access to a professional. And that really helped me and is helping me you know, in my life and will always help me, you know, getting access to therapy. And it's a privilege, but one that I, I highly recommend because, you know, especially in my culture, we don't like talking about mental health and we don't like disclosing our mental health issues. And I remember when I disclosed mine to my parents, when I was finally diagnosed, I felt clarity in my life, but they thought something was wrong with me and Mm. that maybe they could pray it away. But, you know, that's not the reality of things. And finding a professional to actually help you is the most, for me, the most important thing that I've done for myself and my life. And it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't even have to be therapy. Sometimes it can be just literally finding or staying in tune with yourself and seeing, okay, if I go to the gym or if I go outside or if I step outside and get some vitamin D in my life, do I enjoy my feelings a little bit better, right? I think, you know, especially with women, we lack vitamin D. And so when we suffer from depression and anxiety, they recommend us to get, you know, vitamin D pills because we lack that. And that's why sometimes we tend to become depressed and anxious because of just lack of vitamins. And so... There's so many things that we can do for ourselves that don't have to be financially expensive to feel better or, you know, work towards healing our mental health. But it, it, it is important to just acknowledge that you're doing it or you're paying attention to it because ignoring your mental health and especially with finances is, is not good because we can cause so much more suffering within ourselves and within our minds and our money if we ignore it. Totally. Yeah. And as people, as listeners might remember, I'm a huge fan of Open Path Collective. I've found my longtime therapist on there and huge fan of therapy. I think it's wonderful to have an unbiased, an unbiased third party who can really help you, you know, navigate the process of healing. And then, yeah, find out what little things make you happy, whether that's a bath, reading a book, petting your cats, coffee, going for a walk, music, dance party. I mean, there's so many different things. And sometimes if nothing is working, I just tell myself, just go take a nap. (laughs) Then you can at least give your brain a break. So I definitely think there are so many ways to manage your mental health on a budget. So my final question is all about financial power. So Becoming wealthy means accepting that you have financial power. And for many of the communities that we discussed today, they might not have ever had financial power. So how can people who've never had financial power get used to the fact that they have it and also use it for good? 
Yes, this is a important an important point that you're making because financial power, right? Once we get to this level of abundance, let's call it abundance, mm-hmm. right? Because you're finally feeling like you can pay your bills, you're not concerned about your debt, or, or maybe you have a debt payment strategy, and you're just entering this level of yourself that is feeling good with their money, and you're loving it, but also feeling a little bit of guilt, right? About, you know, who you're living behind. And I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier that it's not about who we're leaving behind. It's more about how we can, one, be grateful that we're here today and we broke our generational curse and we've decided, yes, I'm taking ownership of my finances. I am becoming the best version of me for me and my future self, right? And when you used to not have it, I'm sure you look back and you're like, wow, I've made it this far, but also who did I leave behind in the process? But let me tell you, you don't have to leave anyone behind. My thing is really bringing people up with me. I'm never doing this alone because I think about all the women and people who have entered my life, who have built me and who have helped me get to where I am today. And instead of feeling some sort of, you know, oh, I have all this power and I'm all this, you know, I'm great. And I mean, I'm, I'm really not the most, you know, I'm still living with my parents and yes, I feel abundant. That's the thing. As long as I feel abundant, that to me is super important, but it's all about when you're trying to use this power for good, it's really about giving back, really about lending a hand to someone else who might need it, who might say, Leah, I... I want to be like you or I want to have wealth. How do I do that? And I don't know how, and I'm struggling with this X, Y, and Z. And it's all about, okay, this is how I can help you. Here are the resources and here are the steps that I did for myself. But, you know, finances are personal. So the way I got here is not going to be how my friend next door is going to build wealth as well. And so it's all about just, you know, one, being able to, Forgive yourself from your past, accept where you, you know, are now and be grateful. Be grateful that you got here and you have this power, but also don't forget about where you started and lend a hand, lend a hand, give back. And that's something that my parents instilled in me for as long as I can remember is to always give back because We want to build generations of successful, wealthy, abundant, first-gen queer, BIPOC folk, right? We want to make more of just, more of this community. We don't want it just to be one or 10 or a hundred, a thousand people. No, we want it to be millions of people. We want to bridge this wealth gap that we've had for generations. We want to fight against this system and in order to fight against it is by not only us being financially aware and working towards our own level of wealth and abundance but it's also giving a lending hand to those who feel stuck in their own environments and want help and be that resource because when i look back on my parents i wish they had me in their life to give them the help that they needed to make their financial decisions Oh, that was so beautiful. And yeah, I think it's so important that we reevaluate what financial power means and what it means to give back because, you know, we can criticize the Jeff Bezos of the world and say, well, if I had money, I would do this. Well, we can strive to be that, right? Like if we don't like the way things are being done, 
then we can strive to become wealthy and have financial power so that we can actually be the paradigm shift to support other people in our community, women, um, first gen, LGBTQ, so that they can come along with us on this journey so that it doesn't have to be the pale and steel paradigm forever. Right. No, 100%. I think money can really make a shift into your beliefs. You can now, you know, support charities, organizations. And, you know, what's even funny is Elon Musk is challenging the UN because, you know, they challenged him. Like, if you gave us six billion, we could change X, Y, and Z. And he's like, well, if I give you six billion, what are you going to do with my money? Right. And that's very important too, right. And supporting the causes that really are making shifts for what you believe in. And like you said, in the very beginning, you have your values that you've instilled for your money by supporting locals and maybe supporting your local community. And that's another way to give back. Right. Exactly. Oh, this has been such a lovely conversation. I'm so excited that we got to chat. If people want to work with you and follow you, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm prominently on Instagram at Leah Landa Verde, just my first and last name. And, you know, I post a lot about mind and money realness, you know, talking real dinero, meaning real conversations mm-hmm. about money because that's what we want to hear, right? I'm all about transparency. So if you want to find more and know more about transparency towards money, you can find me there. I do have a new podcast called Mi Riqueza Podcast, and you can find that on Spotify and Apple Music. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm here no matter what, whether you find me or not. I hope you listen to this podcast and and feel heard and seen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.